Good evening. I'm thankful that we have the opportunity to be here and to worship God together. I joked with Jay and Jess this morning for taking a decent amount of my scriptures, but I really do think that the topic that I'm going to cover will work really well with his. Uh, the points that we made are different, but I think that if we implement these characteristics, that it will help aid in us having that great hope that he talked about this morning. I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about becoming like little children. I'd like to start my reading off in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say unto you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name will receive me. The disciples asked Jesus and apparently are having a great concern about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke's account in Luke 9 and 46, we're told that a dispute or an argument broke out about this. The response that the disciples received was certainly not the response they expected. As, we'll, as we will see in the next verses that we read. The response that they were given was to repent, to completely change their way of thinking, to humble themselves, and to become like this little child. Matthew nineteen thirteen through 15 says, Then the little children were brought to him that they might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. A couple of things. No. I got ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Back to this. A couple of things that I want to note from these verses about this child is that the child was obedient. Jesus called the child to him, and the child came. The child trusted Jesus is evident in the child coming to him. And we can see and we're told in verse 4 of this reading that the child was humble. Often as parents, especially as our kids are getting a little bit older, we tell them, you know, they need to grow up in certain areas. And if we aren't careful, all we see is the mistakes that our kids make. And certainly we should be cognizant of those mistakes so that we can help instruct and correct them. But we need to be careful not to focus on this so much that we miss out on the lessons that they teach us. They are completely trusting and dependent on us, and they are humble. I'm sure that unfortunately most of us have witnessed, and more unfortunate for others like myself, have been the one that someone witnessed being harsh with their children. Because of your child's great love, trust, and dependency on you, they are instant to forgive. And they display this perfect demonstration of forgiveness and humility. Don't abuse your child's love, trust, and humility. You will do them a great disservice as they transition from answering to you in your home to learning to willingly submit to Jesus as they get older. If you display love, trust, and humility to them, it will be much easier for them to move their dependency from you to God. We don't need to miss out on these lessons that our children teach us. I can't help but wonder if the reason that children have these great qualities is to help remind us as parents what we should strive to embody as Christians. 
Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 and 15. And I already read this, so I will not read it again. The disciples here had already forgotten that they were, what they were told in the previous verse. Not much time had elapsed from Matthew 18 to 19. Here Jesus reminds them again, Do not hinder the children from coming to me. For to the ones that are like them, the kingdom of heaven belongs to. Now we'll read Matthew 23, verses 1 and then 11 through 12. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. Jesus is speaking to a crowd as well as to his disciples here. And he's about to tell them the error in the Pharisees and the scribes. Verses 11 and 12, it says, The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus once again tells the disciples that if you want to be great, do the complete opposite of what the world would tell you to do to be great. The world says be a king or a lord over people if you want to be great. Jesus says, no, it's completely the opposite. If you want to be great, be a servant. Be humble. Because when you humble yourself in due time, you will be exalted. Do we have the heart of a child in these areas? Jesus has never asked us to do something that he himself has not already done. These are, a few of, or these are all the things that I'd like to look at tonight. Full of trust, fully dependent, full of love full of humility and full of forgiveness. And we've already talked a little bit about how our children display these to us, but of even greater importance, Jesus has displayed all these things. Jesus was full of trust when he came to this earth. He knew that he was coming here ultimately to die, and he trusted that he'd be risen on the third day. He was fully dependent on God. We can see several occasions where he was with his disciples, and after he was with them, he left for a little bit to spend time in prayer. He was dependent on God. He was full of love. The Gospels show just how great his love was for us. He was full of humility. He humbled himself to the point of death, the death on the cross. And he was full of forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Children are full of trust in their parents. And as, our, as their parents, we need to model being fully trusting in Jesus for them. Matthew 6, verses 25 and 26 says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not of more value than they? God will provide for us. We need to trust that He is faithful to do what He said. We spend way too much time and energy consumed with these thoughts. Our time could be used in a much more effective way than wasting time worrying about a promise that God has already said that He would fulfill. We may not phrase it that way in our mind, but when we question a promise, that's exactly what we're doing. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. If we trust in the Lord, He will refresh us. We will not be fearful or anxious, and we will produce fruit. Trust in the Lord has to be exercised in the good times. If it's not exercised in the good times, then when the bad times come, the difficult times of this life, having this level of trust in Him will be difficult. Certainly, it'll be difficult to a point to where we are not fearful or anxious, 
But in the bad times, we can see that fruit is produced as well if trust in Him is exercised in the good times. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. This verse tells us that we are not to be partly trusting, but fully trusting with all that we have. This is the standard of trust that we should have in Jesus. Proverbs 11 and 28 he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Misplaced trust always leads to our own self-destruction. Place your trust in Jesus and you will thrive because you have a firm foundation in him. Psalms 40 and verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turns aside to lies. Very plainly put, we will be happy when we trust God. Romans 14, 19, and 20, 19 through 21, it says, And not being weak in the faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Do we have trust in God in things that without God would otherwise seem impossible? Do we grow stronger in our faith each day because we are fully persuaded that God is able to do exactly what He said He would? Now I realize that this passage is a unique situ situation with a specific promise and goal in mind, but the point still remains that Adam trusted in God. No matter the scenario or the circumstances, we need to fully trust in Jesus. He is more than worthy of our trust. When we place our trust in Him, He will never let us down. Hebrews 13 and 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. This verse should bring us great comfort knowing that we never have to wonder when the next change is coming from Jesus, of what we need to do, how we need to act, or how we need to live. We will make adjustments to how we act and live as we walk in Him, but it won't be because He's changing. It will be because we see that His Word demands that we change how we act and live according to His never-changing Word. Hebrews 6 and 18 says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for the refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. There is no other area in our life that we can confidently say this will happen or this will not happen or a range of other absolute statements that we could come up with. The only thing that we can know with full assurance is that God cannot lie. He is incapable of it. It goes against His divine nature, which means we can have full confidence in His Word. God is worthy of our trust because He cannot lie. Psalms 9 verse 10 says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When we seek God, when we trust Him, He will not forsake us. In Hebrews 13 and verse 5, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Before that was said, He said, Don't love money and be content. The same thing is being said here as it is in Psalms 9. When we seek the kingdom, when it has preeminence in our life, God will not forsake us. Trust in God. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we trust this verse? Are we not fruitful in the kingdom because of a lack of trust in this verse? 
We read a moment ago that it's impossible for God to lie. We were just told that this, this verse says that He is faithful and just to forgive us. What a powerful and moving verse that should give us great hope and confidence in God. Revelations 21, 7 and 8 says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, which is the second death. In the verses prior to this, John sees a place where there's no more crying, pain, or death. John sees heaven, or at least a glimpse of what heaven would be like. Then he is told to write these things down because they are faithful and they are true. Did you notice what was in verse 8? It says the unbelieving, those that do not trust, have their part in hell. We need to be full of trust in God. Children depend on us for everything, at least up until a certain age. We need to display to them fully depending on Jesus. John 15 and verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. To me, this verse paints the clearest picture of our dependency on Jesus. We are told that without him we cannot do anything. Spiritually, we are dead without him, so we definitely cannot do anything. But even physically, we can't. In Acts chapter 17, we're told that, I, that, that Jesus gives to all men life, breath, and all things. We are completely dependent on Jesus. Romans 1 and 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The power of God to salvation is dependent on the gospel of Christ. We are dependent on Jesus and His gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Him to be saved. If you have not obeyed this gospel, then you need to because you're dependent on it in order to be saved. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten to us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The only way for us to obtain this abundant mercy from God is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Praise God that He has risen. Romans 5, 9 and 10 says, Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. In order for us to be reconciled to God, we have to be declared innocent and righteous. We have to be justified. The only way to accomplish this is by being washed in the blood of Jesus. Verse after verse, we see our complete inadequacy as humans and our great dependence on Jesus. God is faithful to us in our dependence on Him. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The first two things that we see in these verses, or this verse here, is that the temptation that we face, other men have faced as well. So what we encounter is not something new. The way we might come into contact with certain temptations now is certainly different, but the temptations themselves are not new. Second, we see that God does not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to abstain. And not only that, He gives us an escape. 
How do we escape or how do we not give in to temptation? By knowledge of Jesus. This verse tells us that God is faithful, and in His faithfulness, He gives us an escape from temptation, and that way is Jesus. Without the knowledge of Him and what He has done for us, then there are very few temptations that we would not give in to as humans. In 1 John chapter 2, we are told to not love the things that are in the world, neither the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of God, but they are of the world. The flesh, the eyes, and pride are what tempt us. Without a knowledge and understanding of what Jesus has done for us, we will give in to temptation without hesitation. But once we know Him, He becomes our escape route. Especially in temptation, we are dependent on Jesus because without Him, we would not be able to bear it. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5 says, Or do you not know that as many as of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we, bury, we are buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. When we submit our lives to Jesus in baptism and obeying the gospel, we are stating our dependency on Him. He is faithful as we saw in verse 5. We are told that if we were planted in the likeness of His death, being buried in baptism, that we should also be in the likeness of His resurrection. When we surrender to Jesus, we place our full dependence on Him, and He is faithful to us. 1 John 5 and 11 says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. This verse doesn't need a lot of commentary. God has given us eternal life, and He can do this because of Jesus. Because Jesus was perfect and took the sins of the world and nailed them to the cross. Because of this, God can be both just and merciful. I know I've said it a few times, but I'll say it once more. We are completely dependent on Jesus. Philippians 4 and 19 and my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. How does God supply all of our needs? Through Jesus. We cannot turn anywhere to where we are not dependent on Him. I hope this helps each of us see just how dependent we are on Jesus. Next, we'll look at being full of love and the standard of love that we are called to as Christians. 1 John 3 and 18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Do we talk about our love for one another, or is it evident by our manner of life? Is our actions and service to our brothers and sisters a testament of our love and commitment to God? This verse that we just read reminds me of James 2 and 16. It says, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. What if we don't give them the food or clothing or whatever other necessity they might need? What good are our words to them if our actions do absolutely nothing for them? It also reminds me of Hebrews 10 and 25 where the writer says that we are to provoke one another unto love and to good works. Love by necessity invokes action. Words at times, certainly, but it always demands action. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5 says, Love suffers long, and is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, and thinks no evil. These verses are often used in weddings, and while they're certainly fitting for that and, and beneficial to help our marriages thrive, 
I certainly believe that these passages have a benefit to our everyday relationships. I have failed in each of these areas more times than I can count, and that's sad. But if we're not diligently working to improve in these areas, can we honestly say that we love? If we fail to improve our love to the standard that these verses cause us to, then at best, all we will give the world and our brothers and sisters is a poor representation of the love that Christ has called us to. Do you know how many marriages and friendships could be reconciled and saved if this level of love was truly lived out in our lives? Countless. Do you know how many people that are without Jesus could be reached if we would relinquish our pride, self-seeking, self-promoting, evil-surmising ways? Countless. Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honor preferring one another. Love in action is esteeming others above ourselves. This is the love that Jesus showed. He esteemed us above Him whenever He went to that cross and was hung on it. We're not going to read these passages because of the length, but I did want to put them up here in case you wanted to write them down and look at them on your own time. But a summation of these passages can really be summed up in this, um, the, the fact that we don't need to have these sins spelt out for us like they were in the Ten Commandments. If the love from God rules our lives, it can be, simply be stated, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not seek to harm or sin against what it loves. That's why love, was the, lo love is the fulfillment of the law. And the same thing here with Luke 6. Uh, I wanted to put all the verses up there, but for time's sake, we'll just read verses 32 through 35. It says, But if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to them from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is it to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. This is a story about love that is very difficult to implement if we're honest with ourselves. When you look at the Greek phrase, what credit is it to you that we've seen there several times? It, it, in the Strong's definition, it means what divine influence upon the heart do you have? Or what benefit is it to you? I certainly do not believe that we are being told that we should not love those that love us, but rather the contrast that is being drawn here is that the love that we should have as followers of Christ should compel us to love those that others would deem as unlovable. How else might they be reached with the love of Christ if not through one in whom the love of Christ dwells? We'll look at a moment at the faithfulness and steadfast love of God and of our Savior Jesus. John three sixteen and 17 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. When we trust in Jesus, we are told that we will have everlasting life. Simply believing in God and His Son Jesus does not grant us eternal life. Trusting in Jesus entails that when we do trust Him, we're going to seek Him. And when we find what we're seeking, we're going to obey it. The mission of Jesus was not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved by believing in Him. 
If you go to verse 19 in this chapter, we see that the condemnation or the judgment is that light, that Jesus came into the world and that men loved darkness rather than light. We condemn ourselves when we choose the world over Jesus. When we choose Jesus, we love, when we choose Jesus and we love and obey him, he is faithful to us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11 and 16 as well. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. If you want a good passage to read on the love that God has for us and the love that we are called to show to others, I'd encourage you to read this first, first John chapter 4, verses 7 through the end of that chapter. And it would serve as a great reminder of the love that we are called to. In verses 9 through 11, we are reminded that the love of God has been made known to us when he sent his son Jesus to, to this world, ultimately to die and be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because of the love that we have been shown, we are reminded to show this same love to one another. When we abide or when we remain steadfast in love, we dwell with God and God in us. Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am per persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is such a powerful passage to me of the unwavering love that God has for us. We are told that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from Him physically on this earth. There's only one thing that can, and that's ourselves. We are the only thing that can separate us from God's love when we choose to live according to our own will instead of His. Romans 5 and verse 8 says, But God demonstrates His love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I cannot think of anyone that I am more unlikely to show love to than to someone that's been terrible to me. Someone that's wronged me, someone that knows they've wronged me, someone that continues to wrong me. And I know that my attitude on this needs to change because of this verse that we just read. While we were still sinners, when we were still in the wrong, Christ died for the ungodly. We need to exercise this level of love to those that wrong us so they might, so they might have the opportunity to encounter the love that Jesus shows to us and so that they might have the occasion to submit themselves to the one that gives us the ability to practice this level of love. Next, we'll look at being full of humility and the standard of humility that we are called to as Christians. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3 says, I, there, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What is part of the formula for living the life that Jesus has called us to live? being filled with humility. When we are gentle and humble people, it allows us to practice patience and love towards our brothers. 
The opposite of humility is pride. Any time that I have allowed pride to take over in my life, I am certainly not patient, and my opinion or perception of reality is definitely more important than yours. So I'm not dealing with you out of love. When we allow pride to take control of a situation, then the bond or the control of peace is not presiding, and unity is not a part of the equation. Unity demands humility. Pride decimates the ability to maintain, humil- maintain unity. I'll speak for myself, but I need more humility in my life. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with him, but made of himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. At the beginning of the lesson, I made the statement that Jesus has not done and asked us to do anything that he himself has not done. Jesus is our Savior. He's the King. And he was a part of creation and had a hand in all that was created. John chapter 1 says that there's not anything made that was made without him. He loved us so much that he humbled himself to dying a death that he did not deserve so he could reconcile the created to the creator. You want to talk about humility. Look at Jesus and strive to emulate this degree of humility as you live your life. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. We need to embody humility as part of our armor. We need to be dressed or we need to be clothed in humility. Until I was putting this lesson together, I've never had this thought, so there's that. It could be right, it could be wrong, and I'm certainly open to correction on it. But in verse 7, it's a continuation of 6. 6 ends with a comma and goes into 7. And 7 says, casting all your care on him because he cares for you. This verse, as we've stated, is a continuation. And in verse 6, he tells us to be humble. Why does he conclude his thought with cast your cares on the Lord after he just got done talking about being humble? When we have worry or stress in this life, especially as a man or the provider of a home, we start looking for solutions and trying to fix things. Typically, when we do this, we turn to ourselves to find the answers, which in turn ignites pride. Maybe the thought here is when you have trouble in this life, try humbling yourself. Going to God in prayer, and in doing so, cast your cares on Him, because He does care for you. And that He will exalt you in due time. Matthew 5, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus is giving His Sermon on the Mount, and His opening line is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The opposite of poor in spirit is being self-reliant. It's not humility. Those that are poor in spirit, those that are clothed in humility, recognize their complete inability to be righteous without knowing the one that is righteous. 
The humble realize they are spiritually bankrupt of any goodness separate and apart from Jesus. I have a curiosity about why Jesus begins his sermon the way that he did. I think that all the Beatitudes that are listed here are certainly of equal importance, and they all need to be a part of our lives. But I personally think that he started with humility, because if you can humble yourself, then you can be taught and instructed in righteousness. Humility is a building block that allows us to grow in other qualities that he desires for us to abound in. If you cannot humble yourself, then you will not be able to grow in love, trust, forgiveness, dependency, and everything else that he wants for us. If you cannot humble yourself, you are built up with pride. God is close to us in our humility. We've already read this verse here, so we won't read it again. But I did want to point out that when we are faithful to being humble, that when we are faithful in being humble, that God is faithful to us in our humility. And we can see that because he said he cares for us and he would exalt us in due time. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is of a poor and a contrite spirit, and who humbles at my word, who trembles at my word. Who will God look on? Those of a humble and a broken spirit, and those who are reverent towards his word. The word look here is defined in Strong's to have favor for or care for, to consider and to have respect for. This is so countercultural to anything we can see in this world. If you want people to favor you or respect you or think a lot of you, then you have to be brash and build yourself up and make yourself someone that is what the world thinks deemed as looking up to. But God's favor and care for are placed on those that empty themselves for the sake of others and are humble before a holy and just God and say that I have no hope without you. I'm lost. You are my rock. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Also he spake this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to the heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Can you imagine coming before God in prayer or in thought and say and think what the Pharisee said? Have you? At least I'm not as bad as this guy. We can see a couple of things in verse 9. Here we see that this, that this was spoken to those that had trust in themselves. The Pharisees had misplaced trust and dependency. Their trust and dependency was not in God, but rather it was in their ability to fulfill and keep the law. They also trusted that they were righteous. They were built up with pride, and in their pride and self-righteousness, they despised others. They had no love. Verse 11 says, of the, Pharise the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Basically, he said, thank you for making me a notch above the rest. They had absolutely no humility. The contrast in this story is the tax collector. 
The tax collector possessed everything the Pharisee did not. He was in a broken state, and he asked God to be merciful to him, a sinner. This tax collector placed his trust and dependency in the ability of God to forgive him. He showed love and humility before God as he sought mercy and forgiveness. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we submit to Jesus and humbly seek him, he meets us with humility. Think about that. It's difficult to comprehend, but the words meek and lowly in verse 9 are Greek words defined in Strong's both as humble and humility. When we learn of him in his humble heart, we will find rest. What a comfort this verse is. Lastly, we'll look at being full of forgiveness. As a member of the body of Christ, we are commanded to be full of forgiveness. Ephesians 4 and 32 says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We have this command to forgive others, knowing that God through Christ has forgiven us. Are we forgiving? Or do we hold grudges, maybe not verbally and out loud to people, but in our minds? Just forgive. It's a twofold blessing. Whenever you forgive, you have the ability to be forgiven by God. Because, and when you forgive, you do yourself a favor by not holding on to hurt that turns into bitterness that becomes a cancer in your life. Romans six fourteen through 15 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is another verse, one of many, that remind us that we need to be known for people that use and exercise the ability that God has given us to forgive. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so do you also to him. Even when we have a complaint or a grievance with them, the command's still the same. It's to forgive. Proverbs 19 and 11 says, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Anger often lends to us being unforgiving. Being slow to anger is good for many reasons, but one is so that we will not overreact and hold sin against a person and not be willing to forgive them. Think about a time that you've done something wrong and, and you knew that person had every right to be mad and upset with you. And yet they, they forgave you. What a weight was lifted. Notching your stomach finally stopped. We all know that's a great feeling. Be that feeling for someone else. Forgive and move on. God is faithful to forgive us when we submit to Him. Hebrews 8 and verse 12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God is faithful to forgive us because Jesus is our high priest and the mediator of a better covenant, as we can see in the verses prior to this one here in Hebrews 8. Psalms 103 and verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What an indescribable blessings. I want my sins removed from me as far as possible. And God's done that for us. He's done it for you and he's done it for me through the shed blood of Jesus. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
When we walk in the light of His Word in its perfection, it illuminates our sin. And when we see that sin, we confess it to Him, and He says that He is faithful and just to forgive us. He makes us clean before Him. What an amazing God we serve. Colossians 1, 13-14 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. In forgiving us of our sins, we are no longer under the power of sin. We are forgiven, and we are placed in the kingdom that Jesus purchased with His blood. What prevents us from abounding in trust, dependency, love, humility, and forgiveness. It's sin. Sin keeps us from living out these qualities. More often than not, pride is the reason for us falling short in these areas. I want to recall to your mind for a moment the story of Jonah. Back at the first of the year, I believe uh, it was, Brother Jeremy gave a really good lesson over Jonah, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to it, or listen to it if you hadn't heard it there on the podcast. The first thing that a lot of people think about when they think about Jonah is that he spent three days in the belly of a fish. And while that does not sound pleasant, and I reckon that none of us want to experience that, that's not the most disturbing part of the story. The most disturbing part of the story is what caused Jonah to spend three days in the belly of the fish. It was Jonah's pride. Jonah's pride was what caused all the calamity in his life. In his pride, it caused him to elevate his opinion of what he thought should happen to the Ninevites above what God's plan was. The idea of mercy and forgiveness towards these people was absolutely revolting to him. He did not want the Ninevites to be forgiven. He told God, he said, I know if I go to them that they'll repent. It's obvious by this he did not have love for them. When Jonah heard God's command to go to Nineveh, he was not humble. He did not submit, at least initially. And instead, he tried to hide from God. He was lifted up with pride. And pride led him to not humble himself before God and do as is asked of him initially. And he did not have a desire for the people of Nineveh to be forgiven, which implies that he had no love for them. And what's even sadder is after they did repent, he spent the remainder of his days outside the city sulking in his pride. Is this our attitude towards our brothers and sisters in Christ when they have wronged us or even if we just know about something bad that they've done? Are we lifted up with pride? Are we quick to forgive? Is the story of Jonah our attitude towards the world? Or are we motivated by the love that has been shown to us to be full of love and forgiveness to those that are without Christ? What can make us complete in these areas? Only Jesus can. Only a working knowledge and understanding of Him can drive and motivate us to show this same level of love, forgiveness, and humility to others And it should strengthen our dependency and trust in Him. Jesus told us that unless we become like these little children, we will not enter into heaven. Our goal should be to build on this each day and strive to demonstrate these qualities in our life with the same sincerity that a child does. The character traits of humility, forgiveness, love, dependency, and trust are difficult to practice as humans. Separated from God, they are impossible to practice without partiality. It's not until we realize that we have a Savior that was full of humility and humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross that we can begin to practice humility without partiality. It's not until we realize that we have a Savior that said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that we can begin to understand forgiveness without reservations. The people Jesus said this in reference to was a screaming mob crying out for His death. 
yet he sought forgiveness for them and accomplished it, the ability to forgive them by the death they wanted for him. Love is difficult to show and to give to others for fear of many reasons, but some of the more prevalent ones are, are for being rejected and let down. Jesus was rejected, and he was put down. He was beat up, and he was crucified. And in, and in his death, he showed perfect love, love that cast out fear. He did not want to die a cruel death. In fact, he prayed, Father, if, you, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And when it didn't, he endured it with love in mind. Hebrews 12 says, for, who the, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He did this because of his exceeding love for us. Until we know and understand this kind of love, it's going to be difficult for us to show this love to the saints as well as to those that do not know God. Once we internalize it, the love that God has given us through his son Jesus, it should be difficult for us not to show and extend this love to others, knowing we ourselves are unworthy of this love. In a world where anyone that's done anything is self-made, it's difficult to practice humility that allows you to see that you are truly dependent. We have little to no control over the vast majority of things that happen to us from day to day. The truth is, the older we get, the more we realize, or at least the more we should realize, just how truly dependent we are. Children do not realize their great dependence, but it's evident in the simplest of requests. Can you get me more food, milk, water? As an adult, a bank account can give us a false sense of security. Having money does not make us independent. We are dependent on the avenue from which we make money and from which the good or service is tendered. What if that avenue dries up? We're we're in, once that avenue dries up, we're once again dependent. A good litmus test for our dependency might be on where we find our security, in temporal things or in God. I hope that the study has benefited you in some way this evening and that you have been encouraged by being here. We never want to close the services without the Lord's invitation. If you have the desire to be baptized, we would ask that you come forward at this time. We would love to help you with that. And if you need the prayers of the church, we'd ask that you'd come forward too as we stand and sing.